Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 9 and 14 to 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths were at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, where we exist to know Jesus and to make him known. Uh, We want to just welcome all of you, particularly those uh, who are new uh, with us this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open uh, them to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24 is where we're going to be. If you don't have uh, a Bible with you or it on your device, I would invite you to just open your bulletin to uh, the bulk of the text, which is uh, printed there. But again, we're going to be in John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. And and as you turn there, uh, so this past week, I left here uh, during the last song last week, jumped on a plane, flew to San Antonio, Texas, uh, and then got back late Friday night. I was there uh, for my demon class, I realized that I need to articulate what demon means. Uh, I was not there chasing some sort of extraterrestrial evil being, uh, but rather pursuing my doctorate of ministry. That's the, that's the abbreviation. So I just, yeah, whew, well, about to have some folks stand up and walk out. So I'm glad we cleared that up here this morning. But um, just some highlights from the trip. Uh, so the first couple of days uh, was, was dying to figure out, you know, where to find some of the best food in the area. Uh, I spent the first couple of days walking around early in the morning trying to eat something other than the $30 breakfast that's at the hotel there. Uh, had a bagel the first day. I would just say, don't eat a bagel in San Antonio. That's not a thing. Um, but I will say what I found after walking around kind of seeking, hey, where's the, where's the best place to grab breakfast? Uh, Tia's Tacos. Breakfast tacos. Faith in what that glory actually means. So here's the four things we're going to talk about, about how the gospel and really the glory of God himself redefines what we seek. And the four things it redefines is the family we seek, the glory we seek, the control we seek, and the acceptance that we seek. 
Here's the first one, the family we see. It's hinted at, but follow with me. Verses uh, 3 and 5. Did you notice where it says, so his brothers said to him. And then again, yeah, in 5, his brothers. That term brothers can also be interpreted brothers and sisters. And this isn't referring to Jesus and his brothers in Christ, if you will. Can you say that about Jesus' brothers in Christ? Yes, yes, you can. Um, but, but he's not saying how we would say, oh, yeah, you're my brother or sister in Christ. This was likely his biological brothers and sisters. And what you can tell from this is, is they, they don't believe in him as God and Messiah. Verse 5 says it. Not even his brothers believed in him. So friends, this, this marks a pretty common theme uh, that we see of Jesus and his relationship with his family. We can see it here in Mark 3. This is when he's going about doing miracles and it says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. They're not necessarily on board with this whole Jesus being the Messiah thing, Right? A little bit further in this passage, it says, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, or he is my brother and sister and mother. It isn't until Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that we see even a hint of uh, Jesus' biological family actually believing in Jesus after the cross and after the resurrection. And so what's interesting is, in the redemptive part of all of this, is Jude and James, two books of the Bible, guess who those are written by? Two of his brothers. Right? So there's some redemption in this story, but, but there's a challenging concept in here where we'll see throughout Scripture that the gospel actually redefines who family is in the church. Now, I will say this. In the greater Philadelphia region, this is a hard sell, right? Uh, because this is a place where it's like, blood's thicker than water. You don't talk like that. People in Texas talk like that. I haven't gotten that out of my head yet. So forgive me for that accent that I just imposed upon you. But, but you know, we say that a lot of times, don't we? And, and uh, the reality is, is, is uh, I don't think we quite believe it even when we say it. Now, let me clarify two things. Why does family get redefined? One, the doctrine of adoption, Right? Uh, we are saved by grace through faith, and we are made uh, sons and daughters of the king. So by family, spiritual relation, we become family with one another. But, but there's a second aspect that kind of redefines this picture of family, and, and it's the fact that we share the same lens once we say, I trust you, Jesus, I live for your kingdom. We're articulating that we agree of what's wrong with the world, what will set it right, and how to live for the one who gave his life for us, Right? So the lens of how we interpret life, often how we uh, view family, it changes. Now here's the reason why I say I don't think we quite believe the blood is thicker than water thing, is in the last two years, I have had many of you come up to me and say, my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my friend has cut me off relationally because of how I view race, because of how I view masks and vaccines. And so, friends, what's happening when somebody cuts you off because of an ideology is they've gone, this is my family, this is the lens by which I interpret my life, and I'm going to push other people to the side. And so even when we say blood is thicker than water, we, we believe that less and less. But let me give you a redemptive picture of what God is doing when he redefines family for us here. Uh, my friend, uh, we were having dinner at a, a, a one of the guy's houses who lives there in Texas 
And I walked in to get, you know, some, some more brisket. Brisket in Texas, that's another thing you should eat. Um, and so I go in, and I see this table of guys, and they got their hand on one of the guys, and they're just praying for him. And I walk up to the guy who they were praying for later. I was like, hey, what's going on? Uh, and he said, you know, he said, one of my children has just high, intense needs. Uh, and the school that he was in, they're like, we, we, can't, we can't have him here anymore. And, and he's just distraught, just trying to figure out what is going to happen. And this table of guys say, can we just stop? and just lay hands on you and cry out to God for you. And they did. And as he's saying it, he's getting teary. And he said, Anthony, I have two brothers, and they would never do that for me. But these guys who I've known for three week-long classes have come alongside of me, and they're like, we're going to walk with you. We're going to pray for you. And I would just say that's a picture of the family that gets redefined there. Now, let me just say this. New Life, we are not perfect at this. There are pockets where we do this really well. But this is also a reality that I think we need to live into more. There are many subgroups, I would say, or groups of our church that say, we just don't feel like a part of the majority group. Maybe it's because they're not a family with young kids and they don't run in that world or, or whatever it may be. But, but my prayer is that we would live into this reality of the redefining of family that the gospel brings. Here's the second one. It redefines the glory we seek. The glory we seek. Uh, his siblings basically want Jesus to become an influencer. Did you see that in verses 3 and 4? They said, leave here in 3 and go to Judea where your disciples so that they'll see your works that you're doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known publicly or openly. So they're basically saying, Jesus, you're in the wrong place. You need to go to the capital. You need to get a, an Insta or a TikTok account and you know, pose and, 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 and just get your followers up, right? You need the, the glory. You're doing some cool stuff. You're like, that raised from the dead healing stuff. Like, that's, that's legit. Go get your following. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm about, right? Again, verse 18, I'm here for my Father's glory. Well, this isn't just a Jesus thing, right, to live for the glory of the Father. It's also, as Paul says, for every single person who's a follower of Jesus. He writes, so whatever you, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, last time you ate maybe a breakfast taco, Did you think about doing it for the glory of God? Or changing a diaper or washing dishes? Did you think of that as an aspect of worship? Paul's telling us that that, that's what we're here to do in everything that we're a part of. Now, I don't know how you feel about beer, but I'm reading an interesting book right now called God and Guinness. Fascinating book. Uh, But it's about this guy, Arthur Guinness, right? Guinness Beer, you've probably heard of it, in Ireland. Uh, he basically, uh, a strong follower of Christ, and he was just asking the Lord for his will and saying, how can I most bring you glory? Now, go read the book if you figure out how he got here, but he decided it was brewing beer, okay? Just, again, suspend all judgment, just go read the book, it's fascinating. But all throughout this book, the number of times it said him or his son or his third generation, fourth generation, did these things for the glory of God was astounding. It, it, you could have just written that as the name of the title, it just wouldn't have sold as much as God and Guinness would have. But uh, it was fascinating because as you watch Arthur Guinness and his uh, kids basically uh, run this business, they, it was very clear they weren't in it for wealth, right? So whether or not you start a business, uh, you know, you could go one direction for your own glory or the other direction for the glory of God. For the glory of self, you're just doing it to get rich, to be an influencer, to have power, whatever that may be. But in the Guinness family, it's fascinating. They use their platform and their wealth to, to push against the uh, impacts of gin in Ireland, 
to push back against poverty. They started Sunday schools throughout all of Ireland. Uh, If you thought Silicon Valley had great perks for the companies that they worked for, Guinness put it to shame. They had multiple doctors that lived there. Uh, They provided housing for people who were living in abject poverty. Uh, It it was just amazing how uh, they didn't want to hold on to the money for themselves. Now, granted, they probably got very wealthy, but they gave so much away, and they were such a part of the community, even advocating, even though they were Protestants, for the Catholics who were being marginalized in society. It was just beautiful to see. And so all that coming back to, do you see your vocation, your calling, your job, what you're doing as a parent, what you're doing as a friend, what you're doing as a son or a daughter, everything, the diapers, whatever, as being a part of glorifying God? You could wash the dishes because you're just grumpy at the person who asked you to do it and you just feel kind of guilty and shameful for doing it, or you can make it an act of worship, saying this is for the glory of someone outside of myself. It impacts how you live. All right, I'm watching the clock here. The control we seek. Verse 6. What restrained Jesus from going down to Jerusalem at this time? He says, my time has not yet come. You know what he's doing there? He's reoriented his sense of control. He's saying, my father is in control. And I'm being restrained by his will. He's not freaking out here. And and recognize that at the end of his uh, restraint of control, it wasn't comfort on the back end. He knew it was death. But he's saying, I can trust my father. Now to his brothers, he said, you know, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. That was kind of a slam. They weren't too happy with him when he said that because he's basically saying, hey, y'all are outside of God's sovereignty. That doesn't mean you're outside of God's control, but he's saying you don't have the same relationship with the father. You're, you're not of him. So you're not hearing from him or praying to him at all uh, and trusting his will. He trusted his father while even knowing the cost. So For us, on this side of the cross, here's the benefit that we have. You know, Romans 8 talks about, you know, he who gave us his only son, how much more will he graciously give us all things? It's an argument of greatest to lesser, where Jesus is saying, or where Paul is writing, God showed us his love for us where he gave his best, his son on the cross. How much more will he deal with every other area of sovereign control that he has in our lives? We can trust him. What happens when we try to keep control ourselves and not trust his sovereignty? And this was, I was on the plane Friday night just kind of circling this. And you know what it leads to? Anxiety right here, right? You're looking at a very anxious person, somebody who fights that tooth and nail. It's not a generational thing. It's an aspect, at least in part, of us trying to hold control of something we don't have any control over. It's called life. When we do that, we are crippled with anxiety we overfunction in our families and in our workplaces to the detriment of every single person around us. And you know what another picture or, 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 or symptom of, of ignoring this is? Is prayerlessness. Friends, if we think we've got this under control, why would we call out to God for His mercy? So it reorients the control we seek. Finally, the acceptance we seek. Verse 7 Um, Again, some strong words. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Friends, Jesus is saying, uh, the world just hates me. He also says it it doesn't hate you because uh, basically you are of the world, right? Again, he's not building bridges with the family in this passage, but um, either way, uh, Jesus is saying the world will hate me because because I am the one who, who teaches against the evil in the world. 
And you know, if you fast forward, this sets the stage for John chapter 15, uh, where he says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, if sometimes you feel alien in your own home or in your school, even though you have tried to be as loving as an, and as accommodating as you humanly and biblically can, and people around you still hate you, it shouldn't surprise us. Because the world first hated him. And if we say we are a follower of Christ, and if we are following him, the world will hate us. Period. That's tough. I was sitting with another couple, my wife and I were sitting with another couple, where we were dealing with the dynamics of this in the schools and, and with our kids. And we're like, you know, how do we engage with the world to, 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 to just kind of help build bridges? And, and, and in some ways, I think we think to ourselves so that our kids will never be uh, looked down against or hated by their classmates, or we will never be hated by our neighbors. And what this is telling us is that will probably never happen. If we're following after Jesus and the world who's opposed to him hates him, they're going to hate us. And so probably the best category that we can get into our hearts and that we can teach our children is that we by nature are exiles. We are living in a foreign land. We have this embassy called the church where we go to and sober up every Sunday and get love and support. And it's a hospital to come alongside of wounded people. But there is always going to be a lack of acceptance in the world around us, but, but full acceptance in Jesus and in the gospel. And so let's talk about this last bullet point of reordering the will, right? If we're not sitting here thinking Jesus is all that glorious um, or God is all that glorious, how how do we reorient ourselves here? And and I flipped the bullet points for those who this is just going to mess with you on the plane, probably 10 o'clock on Friday. I was like, I'm going to switch these. I'm sorry I did that to you. Probably a bad decision because I was on a plane at 10 o'clock on Friday. But Here's the first point is, is we need to consider the order of understanding, of when our eyes are actually open at an intellectual level to who God is. And, and I would say uh, this lands here in verse 17. I think it's 17. Well, first of all, verse 14, he actually goes to the feast, right? He shows up late. Some people are like, was Jesus lying when he says to his brothers, when he says, I'm not going to go? Uh, and, and I would just argue one in the Greek there in verse 8, you can read, I am not going up to, I am not yet going up. So that's a possibility. But the bottom line was, is he's saying, I'm not going to follow y'all's rules, brothers and sisters. I, I'm going to follow my father's rules. And so he waited till about halfway through the festival and he went. But either way, in, in verse 14, they're like, who is this guy, right? That he's teaching these things. And, and, and how is it that he has learning in verse 15 and 16? He says, my teaching is not mine, but it's the one who sent me. He's looking at him and in rabbinic uh, in, in rabbinic law, basically you would quote your rabbi you learned from. And, and he quoted a rabbi, all right. He said, hey, the guy I learned from, it's God, right? And then in 17, he just makes this point. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, uh, he's, in, he's insisting that the conclusion about who Jesus is can't necessarily be reached by religious debating. D.A. Carson would say he's essentially saying that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will first. That is the faith commitment. Clint last week quoted uh, Augustine where he says, I believe in order to understand. You see, there's an order here. 
that, that we're never going to get all the intellectual explanations together enough to go, okay, now that I have all my questions answered, now I'll have faith. He's essentially saying faith comes before understanding. Here's another way an author put it. He said, those who are morally willing to follow Jesus will be then intellectually convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But we can't flip that order. We need the eyes of the Spirit to open our eyes to who Jesus is, and it will be blocked until that faith is realized. Here's the last point, and it's really Jesus appealing to the real authority. Verses 19 to 24 Uh, Jesus is reorienting us to who is the most glorious. He's not just saying the Father is most glorious. Here, he then says, I am also God, and I am equally glorious with the Father. He, He appeals to their, these Jewish leaders, most glorious thing, right? He appeals to their law. That's what they really find as most glorious. Not even God the Father. It's the law that they've created all these extra laws around. And let me do this quickly. In verse 22, um, he says this, He says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So he's appealing to their law. He basically says, Moses in his law gave you circumcision. He said, by the way, the father, forefathers, Abraham, they did it first. It wasn't even Moses. It was Genesis 17. But then he says, hey, he gave you circumcision, Leviticus 12. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. He also gives in the law the Sabbath day. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, here's where he's going with this. He's basically saying, you have two competing laws here. Because if a child was born on Sunday, the very next Sabbath, you're going to have to do work in circumcising this child. Uh Uh-oh. There's an ethical dilemma, right? Verse 23 says, If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I make a man's body whole as well? Here's what circumcision is. It's the symbolic removal of flesh that shows the cleansing of the person. And he's saying if that supersedes the Sabbath, that repairing of the body in a way, he said how much more does me making this man's whole body well supersede your wimpy little rules about the Sabbath? He's standing in front of him and saying, I'm God. I'm more glorious than anything else you're seeking. Follow me. Saying, I am owed the same glory, if not more glory, right, than any laws or created things that you could put in place. Friends, we might not be these keepers of the law or seekers of the law, but we spend our lives seeking after glory, and we often find it in the stuff that God made, not in God Himself. If we're seeking the most glorious in what He created, then then we're falling short. And Jesus is standing before us saying, I'm here. I am the most glorious. So let me read it in reverse and then we'll conclude. We are all seekers. Jesus is our glorious God who died for you and for me. And in the end, he is who we're seeking. We have faith in him and then we understand of who you are, of your cross and your resurrection. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.